everybody. Welcome to the Inking of Immunity podcast. I am your co-host, Chris. I'm here with Mike and Becky. How's everybody doing? Doing well, as well as we can be. Yeah. (laughs) We're just having a little chat about the scare quotes here. Exciting times going on in our nation's capital on this side of the pond. Y'all have Brexit. We have Frump, you know, Game of Thrones, War of the Roses. (laughs) whatever it's all good you know we're not the first civilization to have these sorts of problems right one of the most famous civilizations in the world that was rife with sort of palace intrigue was the ancient egyptians was it not yes it was is that why you planned today's interview for today mike i mean i think it might have been just a happy coincidence but today we're going to have <laughs> ann austin joining us and Anne is an assistant professor of anthropology and archaeology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and her research focuses on using human skeletal remains along with art and other texts to understand ancient Egyptian culture. In addition to this work, she is interested in Egyptology and osteology, and she helps to improve archaeological data management practices through her participation in an international collaborative ethnographic research study on archaeological field schools. Currently, she's working on a project trying to determine how health and disease affect the village and community of Dair el-Medina during the New Kingdom period, as well as looking at the practice of tattooing in ancient Egypt, which is what we're so interested here, and how it might be connected to gender, religion, and medicine. Cool. Let's bring her on. Hello. 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 Welcome. How are you all doing? Good. How are you? Good. There's crazy stuff going on in the United States, but where oh, it's, you know. We were just saying, surely the um, ancient Egyptians had palace intrigue along these lines. This was uh, serendipitous to have you on the show. Oh, yeah. We have, there's this one king who we think was assassinated. We have pretty good evidence for that. We have a text that talks about it, but it's presented almost as a hypothetical, like, watch your backs. But this king, we have his mummy, and it looks like he, his neck was cut, and it's called the harem conspiracy, which makes it sound even sexier. So we've got some palace intrigue for sure. Yeah, well, that's wow. that's cool. We'll we'll have to circle back around to the to the harem intrigue at the end because it touches on the chapter that you sent us. But um, I wanted to say hello and introduce ourselves. Welcome you to the Inking of Immunity podcast. As we all can see from our Zoom screens, we can see who each other are, but. For our listeners who don't have that, I'm Chris, and we have on the show Dr. Ann Austin and my co-hosts. Hi, my name's Becky. I'm a lecturer in psychology at the University of Sunderland in the UK. Hi, I'm Mike, and I am a PhD student at the University of Alabama working with Chris. I am so into your research. I'm very into Egyptology, but don't know a whole lot about it myself, and I can't wait to get into all that with you. But before we do that, I think we all need to hear about your fencing and boxing skills. Yeah. Well, so when I was eight, I begged my parents to let me try fencing after watching a very old Gene Kelly Three Musketeers movie. And they kind of pushed it off and pushed it off. And two years later, after begging for two years, they were like, fine, we'll let you try it. 
so that you can quit and we'll stop hearing about it anymore. And that was it. That was it. I fell in love. I fenced all the way through college and was very big part of my college career. I was at Harvard. I was captain of the Harvard fencing team, which makes me sound like a James Bond villain <laughs> because <laughs> there actually were James Bond villains that were like part of the Harvard fencing team. But no, it was a fantastic experience. And one of my crowning achievements as a person was that we won NCAA Division One national championship. So it was a very cool experience and um, I loved it. And would have kept doing it. But then in grad school, I was in LA and the competitive fencers in LA were like 14 year old, really pretentious. <laughs> and turns out that was not my crowd. Like, who knew? I really didn't like losing to a woman, too. Like, it was just not a good, not a good place. So I stopped, but I wanted to find something else. And I was like, you know, boxing is just like, fencing with your fist, right? I mean, they got to be pretty close. So I've been doing that since, but I, I have to say I'm not a good boxer, but that's okay because I don't have expectations for that. That's cool. I I uh, fenced, well, I took some fencing, we'll say it that way, when I was, <laughs> when I was younger and, and then uh, stopped. And I don't even remember why I stopped because I loved it. Then I had a, a good friend of mine who got a scholarship to NYU and fencing and it blew my mind that you could even do that of course now I know you can get a scholarship for almost anything so having kids headed off to college I'm encouraging like do anything fence kite building whatever it is that floats your boat you can get into college that way I wouldn't have gone to Harvard if it weren't for fencing and I not thought about it as a possibility I grew up in Michigan went to public school and was very excited to go to University of Michigan because that was where everyone in my family had gone. And when I started getting recruited because I was really competitive, I was like nationally and internationally competitive. It was just totally out of left field. I wasn't expecting it. My parents suffered a little. They were like, we will accept it, but we're going to call Harvard the Michigan of the East. So it was, it was their way of being okay with it. Well, speaking of Harvard and your training, and could you tell us a little bit about your background and your area of expertise and how you came to study tattoos on ancient Egyptian mummies? Sure. I did my graduate studies at UCLA, so my master's and PhD, and I chose UCLA because I really wanted to be able to study ancient Egypt through two very different perspectives. I wanted to do it as a bioarchaeologist, so somebody studying human remains. And I wanted to do it as an Egyptologist, as someone looking at the text, because I saw a lot of opportunity there. And I also saw a lot of disconnect is in the bioarchaeological communities weren't really talking about the text very much. The Egyptological communities weren't really talking about the human remains. And if they were, it was more the artistic and cultural side of the way that they're being treated, but not necessarily what you can learn as a bioarchaeologist. So for my dissertation, I wanted to bridge those fields through studying health, illness, and healthcare. And I was working at a site called Daryl Medina, which we'll be talking a lot more about. Daryl Medina is, I'm very biased to say, probably one of the best sites in the ancient world because it is the village of the workmen who cut and decorated the royal tombs during the New Kingdom. And so in Egypt, that's around 1550 to 1070 BCE. And when you hear like workers and king's tomb, a lot of people think pyramids and slaves. And this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about these hidden tombs that are being made by very, very skilled 
workmen and they were highly valued. So this village was exceptionally literate. They were given a lot of resources. They were given healthcare. They were given houses. They were given service and support. And we as archaeologists are super fortunate because this village has basically like the world's biggest trash dump. <laughs> we are really, really fortunate. They dug a pit in antiquity to try to get to the water table because they didn't have local water. The village was built near the tombs, which was far away. And when they did that, they dug this pit. It was 30 meters wide, 50 meters deep. And it seems like it didn't quite succeed. And so they ended up using it to dump all of the documents that they weren't using anymore. So these are the kind of documents you would find in your own trash can. Things like pay stubs and personal letters and people's legal disputes with each other. And we have tens of thousands of these. So Daryl Medina is pretty exceptional because you really get a sense of what daily life was like in a way that you don't really just cannot get that far back in history. But despite all of that, they never studied human remains there. And so I started working with the French Institute of Oriental Archaeology in 2012 to study the human skeletal remains in order to understand what they could tell us about illness and care at the site. And in the middle of that, I came across this woman's torso. She's partially mummified, so we still have the skin. And we don't have the head. We don't have the hands. We don't have the legs. But this torso is just covered. She has over 30 tattoos on her neck, her shoulders, her arms, and her back. And so I, I mean, literally just kind of fell into studying ancient tattooing, but it kind of feels like it was meant to be because I'd always wanted to intersect Egyptology and bioarchaeology. And I can't think of a more literal representation of that than text on human remains. I was just watching the video from when you were a postdoc where you make that discovery. And it echoes our first interviews with Aaron Dieter Wolf, who's an archaeologist who studies tattooed mummies and such. And he made the point that the renewed interest that we're seeing in tattooing may be because of a generation of tattooed anthropologists. The last couple generations or so, people are heavily tattooed. So so we're looking at it. And, and you make that point in the video that you found this one tattoo. And what did that say to you? What did you then expect to find more of? And did you? Yeah, well, I think that what's interesting is there is kind of this general acceptance that very rarely did we find tattoos. Maybe from earlier time periods than one I studied, or they had some depictions from the time period that I studied, but there was no physical remains. Up until that point, there were only three women that were found in an Egyptian burial context that had tattoos. And these were all women buried together from the Middle Kingdom. So they dated to almost a thousand years earlier than some of the material I'm working on. And that had been kind of the assumption that that was all we knew so far. And then after finding this, this is not just one tattoo, this is 30 tattoos. This is somebody who has basically half sleeves, tattoos on her neck, very visible tattoos. So looking at that, you can't assume that this is something that came out of thin air, right? There has to be more to it. And I think part of the problem is that not only have people not looked because I think there were stigmas against tattooing for so long, but also technologically, people had a hard time finding them. And so infrared has made that a lot easier. I found those first tattoos because they were visible. But with infrared imaging, we've been able to find more and we've just been looking. So we've had a lot of success. Now at Daryl Medina, I've found tattoos in two other tombs. I'm working on publishing some of them now. I've found a total of seven individuals that have some evidence of tattooing. And this is from a place that all the bodies been ripped to pieces. So hard for me to know exactly how common it was. 
but it definitely appears to be something, at least at the site that I work at, that would have been a lot more abundant than I think we previously thought. And interestingly, all the evidence that we have from my time period is on women. And that's true for most of Egyptian history. The earliest periods of Egyptian history, the pre-dynastic periods, we start to find Rene Friedman has found some evidence of tattoos on men. And that's also really exciting because we assumed that men couldn't get tattooed in Egypt. And now the start of Egyptian civilization has evidence of tattooed men. So it really, I think, is the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more that we should find now that people know how to look and now that people know that they should check. You mentioned about finding the tattooed torso of the mummy. And obviously you said she was like literally covered, neck, half sleeves, very visible tattoos, very heavily tattooed. Do you have any ideas about what these tattoos may have represented or what they may have indicated? Anything about the placement or anything like that? That's one of the things that I think makes her even more unusual. The previous tattoos that we had evidence from the Middle Kingdom were mostly geometric and they were abundant on the, the women that we have, as well as some figurines that we've got identified patterns. But it were really hard to interpret these geometric patterns. People didn't know exactly what to make of them. The ones that I identified were almost all figural. I mean, they basically, they had the kinds of things that we find in other parts of Egyptian culture. So suddenly it opened up this whole window to interpreting what these tattoos mean. And the ones that she had, several of them were directly related to this goddess Hathor, who's one of the most important goddesses in Egyptian history. So they have these deeply religious meanings that we can now positively connect. This is also interesting because the previous evidence had these links to Hathor, like one of the tattooed women that had been found was a priestess of Hathor. But you couldn't make the direct connection. You couldn't say that tattooing and Hathor had to go together. And now suddenly we have got some tattoos, like one of my favorites, for instance, is these two cows that are on her lower right arm and they're placed opposite each other and they're wearing these menat necklaces which are special necklaces for the goddess and I love it because when we found it it was really easy to see physically see but we were inside the tomb and my colleague Cedric Bay and I were just looking at it I mean we looked and looked and we looked in every angle we could and we couldn't make sense of it and then we went upstairs and just took a photo and started to stretch the photo like we were stretching the skin back to real life and suddenly it became clear what we were looking at. And it was it was amazing to have that moment of kind of revelation. So the tattoos that she has have these deeply religious connotations. And some of them in terms of their placement, I think they have very intentional placement. So one of my favorite patterns is the Irinefer pattern. It's an eye. In this case, it's actually a divine eye with the sign Nefer in between. And Nefer as a word in Egypt means beauty and goodness. And in combination, Irinefer makes the phrase to do good. And it was given this divine ability to do good because they used divine eyes. And they placed those on her neck. And I think they did that intentionally to place it on her voice box. So when she spoke, sang, or did rituals, that it actually enabled her to good. And that follows Egyptian properties of magic, where you can give something its power through touch. The other interesting thing about that is we find those two pairs, those pairs of divine eyes, not just on her neck, but also on the tops of her shoulders and on her back. So no matter what angle you're looking at her, there would have been a pair of divine eyes looking back at you. That is so cool. So you kind of mentioned it right there with the magic that's involved in some of these symbols. And you kind of talk about in your in your article, the 2017 article, Embodying the Divine, you talk about tattoos as potentially being some sort of permanent amulet marked into the skin of someone. And with that, it carries some sort of 
potential magic or medicinal powers. Can you can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, in Egypt, the concepts of magic and medicine really go together. I view them as two sides of the same coin. An example of that is we have this papyrus called the Edwin Smith papyrus, and it reads very surgical. And people have in the past said, oh, because it is you know presented as the surgical thing without magic, it must mean that they had a rational medicine versus irrational magic. That's how it's been proposed in the past. But if you look at it closer, there's magic built into it. There's incantations built into it. There's magic written on the opposite side. So it really is much more integrated. I think what's been tricky is that a lot of the rituals were ones that were done, but not always written down. So sometimes it's very inaccessible to talk about what magic and medicine look like. We do have some examples, though, luckily from Dramadina, because we have this giant trash pit. So things that they had recorded for magical purposes and, you know, either worked and succeeded in getting somebody better or the person died, those were thrown away and we have some of them left behind. And so we know that there were various things that really had kind of amuletic protective power. And it seems like some of the different symbols, for instance, that Wajid eye has that protective power. And I think placing it on her body would have acted as a kind of protection. Now, what's interesting is we tried to figure out who was this woman, like what role did she have? Because we don't have any representation of a heavily tattooed woman from Egypt. So she seems exceptional, but we're not sure. We found other individuals with tattoos. So it's hard to know if she is indeed exceptional and someone who would have stood out in her community or if we just haven't found enough evidence. When we looked at other women in the community that seemed to have these closer religious roles that would be similar to the kinds of roles that she might have had through having all of this religious iconography on her body. There's this one woman, the wise woman, who stands out. And this is somebody that people would go to when they wanted to understand fate and destiny. They would ask her to talk to the gods. So this is a woman who seemed to have a a way of communicating with the gods and being interacted with the divine. But you know, she's just one woman in the community. And so I think it's possible that she could have been in that role. But I, I want to open us up to saying, well, maybe we just are underestimating the interaction that women had with the divine. We're underestimating their religious power in daily life. And it's because it's not showing up in the places we look. It's not showing up on temple walls. Instead, all of that iconography is actually showing up on women's bodies. So I don't know if you describe it this way in all the articles, but I think what you're saying is what they do is amplify the power. I think you used that term in at least one of the articles. I get a little nervous when we talk about ancient cultures like Egypt, where we have this sort of biased view, like everything's ceremonial, everything is religious. It's like saying, when we say something is like ritual, instead of just thinking of it as like, yeah, I have a ritual cup of coffee. It's like a thing I do every morning without even thinking about it. We tend to make everything into sacredness. But it sounds like you have enough context to make that assertion. Is that correct? Are we, in other words, in any danger of over-interpreting what you see here? Do you think tattooing was a normal thing that might have just been a way to enhance attractiveness? Or do we know for sure that there's more to it? Yeah, in this context, where we're getting a lot of this is by looking at the material culture. So we're looking at what was her cultural context. If someone looked at tattoos on her body, where else would they see those symbols? And the places that we find them are in religious contexts. So she has tattoos that are engraved on her body that are the same symbols we see engraved as graffiti on the floor of the goddess Hathor in that village. 
She has this Irinefer formula is something that would have been part of graffiti that were dedicated to the goddess Hathor in the surrounding hillside. There was a huge temple to this goddess that was just around the corner from them. So the iconography that we get and our interpretations of them are really founded on what material culture connections can we make and where else are people seeing these? How else are they interacting with them? I think our idea of religion and daily life in some ways is almost flipped. The Egyptians wouldn't use the word religion, right? It was their understanding of their interactions with the divine was much more part of their daily life as well. But they did have clear religious hierarchy. So we can imagine that when they're walking around, they're interacting with the world, they see the divine in the natural environment that's around them. But when you look at who gets to call himself a priest, who gets to work in a temple, there's much more limited and much more hierarchical structure. So I think the one danger for interpretation is saying, how does somebody who has permanent public displays of religious symbols that are part of the temples in their area, how does that person fit into that temple culture when we don't have in this time the title priestess of Hathor? So I think the danger is thinking about that, thinking about where does this person fit? But interestingly, I think it also points to some biases we have in the ways that we interpret the past. We've only looked at those titles, right? And we've only said the people who are religiously important must be people with these titles. But I'm pushing back on that and saying, we have evidence of somebody who has physical depictions of God's eyes all over her body, and she doesn't have that priestess title. What does that mean for her role? And so that's, I think, the area where I've been pushing a lot more against the grain of what had been previously said. I find that connection you make really interesting, how we need to change our views of the past. And I think it's interesting how, in general, we tend to interpret the past in order to fit with our current narratives or cultural perspectives. And I also think it's interesting that it's you as a woman making these connections, whereas a lot of the past research on tattoos have been done by mainly Western European males, and they tend to classify women, especially with tattoos, as only being some sort of concubine or prostitute or something, something that's that's being imaged to direct the male gaze or in an erotic fashion. So you were really kind to share one of your upcoming publications, which is going to be a chapter in a new edited volume on women in ancient Egypt. So can you talk a little bit about these shifting perception of tattooed women, especially in ancient Egypt? Yes. So it is fascinating, maybe even horrifying as we as we kind of look back at the earlier literature on tattooing in Egypt and see what assumptions people were making without actually founding it in the evidence. And so one of the things that comes up in the early 20th century publications about tattooing is this instant connection between tattooing and eroticism and sex work. And what's interesting is, so to begin with, in Egypt, we actually have no evidence of sex work per se. There's two texts that talk about somebody being paid for sex, and it's women paying men. And those are our only texts. They're like giving them clothing. So if we want to start with there, the assumption that tattooing indicates somebody is a sex worker is just not based in the evidence that we get from Egypt. And that's not to say the sex work didn't exist in Egypt, but it's saying that there's no evidence that it's connected to tattooing. So when I look at that and I look at where the evidence is coming from, the people who are writing about it talk about it in their context. They say, and this is, for instance, Keimer, who he wrote the book on tattooing in ancient Egypt. He says, I know of no woman 
of good society going all the way back to ancient Egypt to today with tattoos. So he makes this connection between his perception of women that are tattooed as being negative, as being sex workers, as having all of this negative perceptions around it. He takes that and he puts it on the past without making, a, I think, a reasonable connection. And what you see is you see this repeated and repeated. And I've got, you know, 21st century publications that repeat these ideas and talk about it in those ways that talk about their morality without evidence, without connections to ancient Egyptian culture. So I push back on that because really just no evidence to support it. The other unusual thing that I see is people talking about tattooing is an indication of low social standing. Even though for most of our history, the only tattooed women we had were women that were found in a royal burial context, buried next to other women who were called queens. So I don't understand how you can make those assumptions when you have women with high value grave goods, really important titles in a royal context. That's our context for tattooing. So all of these negative perceptions, I really think, came out of stigma in the 20th century around tattooing. Connections between tattooing and women's sexuality that happened in the 20th century and their more recent work is moving us towards saying, look, let's put this in its context. Let's look at how tattooing fits into not only ancient Egypt, but into Nubia, how they're connected to each other. And I think that's where we're starting to get really new results. Now, one of the things that is really exciting is because there's so little we know so far, and we're just starting, like I said, tip of the iceberg. I don't think tattooing has to be just religious. I don't think it doesn't have to be erotic. I think it can take on multivalences. They have lots of different meanings. And so the more we study, the more we understand those, those meanings in Egypt. And that's where I think the direction is going to go. It's going to move away from this purely eroticizing concept to really saying, okay, let's, let's put this into all of the ways that these tattoos could have functioned on women's bodies. You mentioned there about how you're pushing against the grin with some of this, I guess, well-established research that kind of implicates tattooed women as low socioeconomic status as sex workers and things like that and obviously you know that does it does as you say repeat open modern day research we've talked about this before about how all the research in psychology just seems to implicitly make that link with no basis no matter how far back I've tried to look it's just there with no rationale for it at all so I wondered a bit more about how this perspective is contributing to the understanding of tattooing in ancient Egypt. And if you could tell us a little bit more about the cult of Hathor as well, because that sounded really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing that's exciting is now we really have opened up the door. Many more people are interested in it. Many people are aware of it. So it's not just my work. Renee Friedman, as I mentioned, is working in pre-dynastic human remains and tattooing. Had multiple graduate students email and reach out about it. I've seen a lot of people just open up to the possibility that there are tattoos and actually just look for them. So that's been a huge shift. And I think in terms of the cult of Hathor, well, the cult of Hathor is really interesting because it's, Hathor was worshipped not just in Egypt, but in Nubia and was probably one of these gods that connected the people across a lot of this northern part of Africa. And she was a really important goddess for the family. She's very closely linked to fertility to protecting mothers, to protecting children, to being a household god. So she's part of people's daily life in a way that some other gods might be less present. And one of the directions we're exploring, I'm working with a colleague right now, looking at tattooed figurines, and we're looking for what connections we can make across the figurines and human remains, because 
Often tattoos that we've found so far displayed on figurines, we've actually not found on human remains and vice versa. And she and I are starting to find some direct connections. And the figurines that we do find connections with seem to have much more close link to fertility and motherhood. And so that's one of the things we're exploring is how tattooing might fit into that sphere and whether there is a connection between that and the cult of Hathor or Maybe tattooing doesn't have to just fit with Hathor. Maybe she fits with other deities or other practices. And we're just seeing another version of the way that tattooing plays out at this place at Daryl Medina. So is there any indication from your analysis of how the tattoos were administered or who had the role of giving these tattoos? Man, I wish. I wish. I've been looking, right? I've thought about this a lot. In terms of evidence outside of human remains and art. The evidence that we get from texts is almost non-existent. We have one word that some people have interpreted as possibly meaning tattooing, but in the context that it comes up on, it does not make a clear argument that they're talking about putting ink on human skin. It seems more like it's about incising into waxen figures, for example. So this is this word metan, or it's used as metanu when I talk about it in the passive. And in terms of archaeological evidence, there have been two bundles that have been found with needles. And those needle bundles were found, one in a pre-dynastic cemetery, one in a New Kingdom one. Those are the time periods that we have tattooing. But bundles of needles could have been used for tattooing, but they could have been used for a lot of other functions. We know that they used needles for a variety of purposes at Daryl Medina, that they used it for cloth, and they used it for mummification. So it's hard to know whether or not those had those functions. There was an MA student who looked at reproducing the needles. They're basically copper plates that had been folded upon themselves to make a sharp point, and then did some experimental archaeology to see if they could have been used for tattooing and found that they could have. They could have succeeded in tattooing. But other than that, where it's still quite unknown, and there's no depictions of people getting tattoos, I think part of it is because most of the art historical culture and textual culture that we get from Egypt comes from men. And if this, for most of Egyptian history, is a women's tradition, then it might mean that it's not going to show up in the same spaces. And so maybe it isn't going to be seen depicted as frequently because of the gender differences in producing the culture that we're looking at. I think it's interesting to look across cultures where we do find gender practices of tattooing. It's common to find, for example, women who are tattooing women. And it does make me wonder if that's something that happens at Daryl Medina. I don't have evidence. I don't know. But as I think about it, it even forces me to reevaluate my assumptions. I mean, this is a village of the artisans who decorated the tombs. They're all men who decorated the tombs. And my assumption had always been that all of the art that came out of this village had to be for men. But now I'm kind of reevaluating that. I'm looking back at the, the different ostraca, which ostraca are like pieces of pottery or stone that have drawings or writing on them. And as I look at them, I find ones that really don't fit into our normal canon for Egyptian art. They don't look like Egyptian art, but they do have like, for instance, one of the representation of something on the throat. So it makes me wonder whether we're missing some of the evidence because we're just assuming that it's not related to tattooing. We're assuming it's made by men. But that's where I, I'm staying in hypothetical mode. We don't have the evidence yet, but it's something I'd like to see if we find more evidence for in the future. So it sounds like you've got a lot more work to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm fortunate enough to be able to keep working there. And we have more tombs that we want to work in. We're doing conservation in, at the site because, as I mentioned, the 
tombs had been heavily looted. Human remains were really treated poorly over the centuries and millennia. I mean, they were looted back in antiquity as well. And so I think there's more tattoos that we'll identify. And we have this really rich material culture at the site too. So I think as we start to go through that, as we look at the figurines in the Africa, we're going to understand more. And hopefully, this won't be just at Daryl Medina. Hopefully, we'll start to see this also pop up as scholars look for tattoos and study tattooing at other parts of Egyptian history. Since we haven't actually uh, started this podcast yet, I'm going to make an assumption based on another one I do that a lot of our listeners will be students, grad students, folks who are interested. In, and certainly, you're right at the, the nexus of things that people go into anthropology for, right? Egyptology, mummies, and tattoos, right? And from only having access to one of those, that triumvirate, I know tattoos in research go viral. So you must go viral like three times over. So students are going to be coming to you in droves, I imagine. If not, how can they get a hold of you? What is there for students to do? What would you suggest maybe in terms of training to do work like this, or maybe just an advertisement for your lab if you're looking for students? I don't know. I'm pretty full as, as of right now. Our program just does undergrad, and I'm working with graduate students from France, and I've got multiple who've reached out. So I, I have been really fortunate to have people interested kind of wherever I go, which makes my life a lot easier. I think for students who are interested in studying tattooing, one of the things that's really exciting is there's, there really is so much work that needs to be done. And I think as we do more work on the past and look at past scholarship, there's more work that just needs to be done to correct the course of past scholarship when it has made assumptions about tattooing and to bring that into the kind of forefront. The other area that I'm excited about is I've worked with a nursing PhD student here at University of Missouri in St. Louis on modern stigma and tattooing and particularly that impact that she was able to look at between people who are very heavily tattooed and their healthcare providers and whether or not they had a positive or negative experience and what that looked like as an opportunity to help retrain healthcare providers on giving you know, the best service that they can, um, people who are heavily tattooed and have experienced stigma in a healthcare setting. So I think there's a lot of directions that people can go in studying tattooing. It doesn't have to be in just you know, the past. We have so much work to do in the present. We have so much corrective work to do in psychology, to do in archaeology. And so I think students in some ways are in a really ideal position because they can even start with the literature and look for opportunities to make new contributions to the field. That is awesome. Thank you so much. I think that's us done, isn't it? Chris? I could talk to her all day. This yeah, is- definitely. <laughs> <laughs> a million more like, how do I become an Egyptologist? Uh, and and here's here's the obvious question i won't belabor this but you found the tattoos on exodus so you're they're doing something else we didn't even ask you about that right yeah it was looking for tattoos it was definitely not looking because we had assumed really that it wasn't a practice it had very little evidence and people weren't looking for it i think i came across them by accident but part of why i think it's also been hidden is that, I mean, when we think of Egypt, we think of the most exceptional finds, right? We think of the King Tuts of the busts of Nefertiti's. And those exceptional finds are primarily royal and primarily in really good condition. So are you going to find a tattoo on a mummy that has been completely wrapped and that person is no longer, their skin is no longer visible? No. 
at least currently, we're not finding them in that way. Even with a lot of the different kinds of technology we have, we're not picking up on tattoos on wrapped individuals. And what's interesting is that at the site that I work at, one of the reasons people never worked on the human remains is because they had been treated so poorly. They had been really just ripped to pieces. And they thought, well, what can you do with material that looks like that, with people who've been treated like that? And I think now we're realizing there's so much that we can learn from these maybe unexpected places. And also it's an opportunity to kind of correct past wrongs in terms of making sure that these people are treated a lot better than they had been treated in the past. I mean, there's horror stories from the 19th century about not only the commercialization of human remains from Egypt, people are selling them, people are using them as medicinal powder, if you've heard of that, mummy powder. There are these big unwrapping ceremonies that happen. We also have some archaeologists who don't see them, see them as a hindrance to accessing what they want to see, which is the walls of the tomb. And they literally just pile them up and burn them or throw them in the Nile. I mean, horrifying, horrifying things. So it's been a real privilege to be able to work on this site and also a real opportunity to kind of bring out the fact that we have to do more conservation and that that has a huge amount of academic merit and we can't underestimate that. I think that is a great point to leave it off and a great thing to remember that people are people everywhere and it's the people that made the walls and we could probably find out a lot more from them if we want to listen. So. Thank you very much for joining us. If you want to plug any social media or websites or anything before we go, feel free. Oh, yeah, I should. Okay, so I'm not very active, I have to say, but I am on Instagram. My official handle is Austin underscore PhD. You can find me there. I'll have new publication things coming out there as well as on academia.edu. So if you're interested in following my work, I've got this upcoming book chapter that we just discussed coming out. Edited volumes are notorious for having unknown publication dates. But as soon as that comes out, I'll make sure that I can share it. And I'll have upcoming articles with some of our new evidence, some of the tattoos that we found since that very heavily tattooed woman. So there's more upcoming tattoos to see. This has been awesome. We'll have to have you back on when that stuff hits the press. Sounds great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. And um, happy spring semester. Oh, gosh, that's not. (laughs) (laughs) Too soon, too soon. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Inking of Immunity podcast. Keep up to date with the latest episodes and find out more about the tattoo research we do by subscribing to the Inking of Immunity podcast and following us on Facebook and Instagram at inking.of.immunity and on Twitter at inking underscore immunity. Make sure to tune in for our next episode.